Hello, listeners. We got another great episode for you today with a special interview. But before we get started, uh, here's a couple of reminders. Yeah, so um, we've got two upcoming things for you to check out. One is Strange Heart Beating. It's a play by our previous guest, Kristen Idajak, um, at Cloudgate Theater at the Frontier in Chicago. So if you live in Chicago, be sure to check that out. Um, The previews start July 9th. And then it opens on July 13th. Also, my play, um, Thing with Feathers, is going to be featured in the Women's Theater Festival in Raleigh, North Carolina, this Saturday and Sunday. That's the 13th and 14th. So I'm really looking forward to that. And if you happen to be at the festival, come say hi to me. Yeah, say hi to Sam. When will she be in Raleigh, North Carolina again? Maybe this next weekend. This weekend. <laughs> right. All right. So without further ado, here's the interview with Jenny Page White, the literary manager from Actors Theater of Louisville. Enjoy. listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies. I'm Sarah Cho. And I'm Sam Collier. And today we have a very exciting guest, Jenny Page White. She's the literary manager at Actors Theatre of Louisville, where she curates and develops new work for the Humana Festival of New American Plays. And we met Jenny at Iowa, where Uh she's in the dramaturgy program. (laughs) Yay! So welcome to Beckett's Babies. Thanks, y'all. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you. Um, So we want to start by asking you about your earliest memory, (laughs) what your life was like before theater. Um, what, What were you like as a small child? This is such an interesting question because I really, how can you tell what was actually your earliest memory? Like I have a bunch of these fuzzy memories that are really pedestrian. Like, oh yeah, I I remember a particular doll I had, or uh, I remember playing (laughs) in my front yard, but I don't know actually what was the earliest. Um, But one thing that I do remember with like crystal clarity is a particular dream that I had when I was young. And I think that I remember it maybe as my earliest memory because I've told people about it, um, which is, I don't know, it's sort of interesting that that's the thing that I hang on to. Um, Mm -hmm. And I look back at it, I don't know, maybe this is the dramaturg in me like wanting to interpret the dreams too, but it's so like, it's so blaringly obvious like what what I was feeling as a child. So I had this dream where, um, so I have two older brothers um, and there's just three siblings, but I had this dream where there was some sort of a monster behind the TV 
Um, and oh, everyone no. was putting their hands <laughs> to try to like fix the TV. And uh, my oldest brother did it and like he got hurt. Um, and then my next oldest brother did it and he got hurt. And then my parents were like, no, we're, we're saving our last child. And they picked me up <laughs> and they like left. And I was so scared that we were going to oh, leave my brothers my behind. And that's what I remember. Oh. It's like my earliest memory. That's really interesting. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of kids have, fears that they're going to be the one left behind, but you were worried about the other kids being left behind. Well, I think I knew even at a young age that I was the favorite child. (laughs) (laughs) And it gave you a lot of anxiety. So what drew you to the theater? Um, Yeah, well, I think when I actually got really excited about theater was when I was in high school. Um, so I grew up on uh, the Gulf Coast of Texas. Uh, we moved around a little bit, but uh, we were mostly in suburbs of Houston. Um, and by the time that I got to high school, um, I was in a suburb that uh, right near Baytown, Texas, um, which is actually where my dad grew up. And it's one of the largest petrochemical areas, um, basically in the United States, um, I think in the world, but they had a lot of taxes from wealthy petrochemical, um, companies. mm -hmm. And the woman who ran the theater program at my high school had been there for 20 years. Um, and she really, uh, I think she knew how to, um, how to argue that uh, the arts really needed a big portion of that uh, tax money. Um, That's such a good skill to have. High school. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what the program looked like at the beginning, but by the time I got there, it was, um, it was really a special program. Um, And they, they had like, like many places um, do like the big musical was like the big thing that, Uh, lots of students participated in. And at that high school, I'm talking about like 200 students at least who were involved in the musical in some way. Um, And these are all sort of like musicals that really can't support 200 actors. Um, (laughs) She would figure out a way to get at least 75 to 100 people on stage somehow, whether that was like doing like, standing on the sides of the theater and like um, sort of singing along or uh, people that actually had like cast roles or there's also the people who were playing in the orchestra. And if you didn't have those skills, then like you could paint the sets, you could sew costumes, um, you could be a stagehand. And I think looking back, it was really like the cool thing to do. Like, that was the big social activity for everyone. But it also really made use of people whose first interest wasn't acting. Um, And part of that was just because Mm -hmm. they had the money Mm -hmm. to like build really incredible sets um, and spend a lot of money on paint and spend a lot of money on costumes. But it meant that a lot of people got to be involved. Um, So, yeah, I think that was the first time that I really was like, oh, I I guess I want to, do theater because everyone else is doing it. And then I think I realized how niche a career it is. 
(laughs) We may be famous in a very, very small world, but nobody really knows what we do. (laughs) Can you name any uh, plays or musicals that made a big impact on you when you were in high school? Uh, Well, like the first thing that I remember performing in was Will Rogers Follies. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it was always, let's see, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones that we did. I think we did Pippin, although that might have been after I actually left that high school. Um, I know uh, I remember Will Rogers Follies because that was the only time that I performed on stage. Um, And it was like... (laughs) If you looked at like the script for Will Rogers Follies, you would probably see like a 20 person cast. Um, And I was one of those people that was like, I don't know, the 75th person like who didn't actually have a role. Um, But I wore a really big headdress and I had to learn how to walk downstairs wearing a headdress. (laughs) That's what I remember. Cool. So how did you get into dramaturgy then? What was the what what inspired you or what led you to follow that particular path? Yeah. So um like I think a lot of people do like you uh I started out as an actor um and basically that was because that's what I thought theater was. Like I didn't really know that much about other roles. Um and when I went to undergrad at the University of Oklahoma, I studied as an actor. And I think when I first like my first experience with dramaturgy, I didn't really know that's what I was doing. But looking back on it, that was like the first light bulb for me where I was like, mm-hmm. oh, th- I really dig this. And um, so I took a class with, uh, as an actor, um, I took a class with playwrights, directors, and actors. Um, and the goal of the class was to develop a one act over the course of the semester. And it was like, oh, I, I, I get to like, have opinions about what's happening in the play as it develops. Um, Mm -hmm. And I very specifically remember in one of the plays, um, my character was uh, like the girlfriend of the protagonist. Um, And there was this point where she dropped out of the story um, and you kind of, you heard something like the, the main character. um, He was kind of, uh, I'm trying to remember the actual story. I just remember that like he was going through like, uh, oh gosh, this is one of those parts where you're probably going to have to edit me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember exactly what was happening to him. I know the story was that he was like trying to build a flying lawn chair by like putting balloons on it. It was this like really ridiculous goal. And I think he was losing friends as he got like more and more in intent on making this thing fly um Mm -hmm. and there was a part of the story where like my character dropped out of it and then when I came back I was like really fed up with him and I remember thinking like I'm as an actor I'm I'm just having trouble figuring out how I make the leap from like being in love with this Mm -hmm. person to like I come back and I'm really mad um Mm -hmm. and I I vaguely remember there was something about the story where they were talking about like phone messages that she was leaving. And I was like, I, I'm, I would be curious uh, what she's saying in those phone messages. And that somehow ended up in the play. And I think when I suggested it as an actor, um, I really wasn't thinking 
that's something that you can just add. <laughs> you can do that right. because you're writing a play. <laughs> you can just change that. Right. And then when I saw the new draft of it, I was like, oh, this, I, I really am, I'm amazed at what this does to, for me as an actor, like helping me make the mental journey. Um, and that was when I was like, oh, okay, I, I really like working on new plays. That's what I'm really hot on. That's so cool. Yeah. What a clear moment of discovery. I think for a long time, I I thought of myself as an actor, even though what actually uh, I was interested in in theater actually wasn't the acting side. It was like the where you sit around in a circle and talk about what's happening in the play. Like That's the thing that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until after I realized that I really didn't want the life of an actor. Um, I really didn't want to go out of town. I didn't, uh, I, I wanted a little bit more stability in my life. That was when I started thinking about um, dramaturgy as a career. And that, of course, coincided with working with The Lark in New York, um, which only develops plays. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So could you talk to us a bit about how dramaturgy lends itself to literary management or the the work that you currently do? And- yeah. Um, so I, I think that dramaturgy and literary management in some ways are like two totally different careers. And they do have crossover skills and they do inform each other, but I feel like I'm using very different parts of my brain depending on what I'm engaged in. Um, so like on the dramaturgy side of it, I, uh, so I work at Actors Theatre of Louisville, which produces the Humana Festival. Um, it's a really intense period of new play development. And um, right now we're doing five new plays um, that are fully produced and um, like I, the literary team does everything from like the first reads of all of the drafts that we're considering for the festival. Um, we write blurbs, we write articles about the plays, um, we write lobby boards um, about the plays. And then the fun thing is that we actually sit in rehearsals, like each of us will um get assigned to either one or two plays um, and work as a dramaturg in the rehearsal room with the playwright and with the artistic team as the work is developing. So that's the dramaturgy portion of my job. The literary management, actually, Mm -hmm. I I sort of mix those things up where actually I think the literary management portion of it is the reading and the writing of blurbs and the writing of articles. And the reason why I think those are like mm, mm-hmm. r- really different skill sets is that as a dramaturg, I think that I'm really in conversation with someone else who is writing the play and making decisions about what they want to what they want to say, what they how they want to say it. As a literary manager, I'm not really in conversation <laughs> or if I am, like, I'm the one who's leading the conversation. Um, I think the crossover mm-hmm. skill is that I think when I think dramaturgy is really at its best is like you're you're thinking of the questions that help unlock something. Um, like really all dramaturgy is, is investigating and articulating how meaning is made. 
And I think the literary portion of that is like really articulating how the meaning is being made. And for me, that's the much harder thing, like writing the blurb and writing an article about um, what the play is doing without necessarily giving away everything that the play is doing feels a lot harder to me than mm-hmm. uh, the investigation portion of it. Like, I feel like when I'm writing, I'm, I have arrived at some sort of an analysis. And oftentimes, like, that analysis isn't complete. Like, the play is still changing. So that part of it is much <laughs> yeah, harder for right. me. I mean, that raises all kinds of questions for me. Like, have you ever... Um, kind of described a play in one way in your literary manage, manager role and then the play changed a lot. And so, you know, the way you had been describing it was now kind of not true anymore. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Can you give an example? Um, yes. I mean, so hopefully the way that I'm describing something like the fundamental exploration of the play, um, I think usually that's not so far off base. Um, But case in point, I was actually, so we're in the middle of editing the published anthology of Humana plays right now. Um, I'm working on the book for the 2018 festival and one of the plays that I worked on was Susan Soonhe Stanton's We the Invisibles Um, Mm -hmm. and that play is inspired by um, so there was I don't know if readers or listeners are familiar with this but there was a scandal um, Dominique Strauss-Kahn who was the head of the monetary fund uh, international monetary fund was accused of raping a mate a maid in New York city. Um, and at the time that the scandal broke loose, Susan herself was working in a hotel. Um, and she was thinking about all of her coworkers that she worked with and like, just, she was really affected and distraught about the scandal. And she kept thinking about what if this happened to one of my friends? Um, so she wrote this play that was really just giving a voice to all of these people that you usually don't see in unseen service positions. And at the time that I was writing an article about the play, um, she was very adamant that DSK was not going to appear as a character in the play. Um, And that was because she really didn't want to give him any space. Um, She felt like he had had enough space. She wanted to hear from all the other characters. And then as we got into uh, rehearsals. And I think it was actually during the workshop, she was like, it's really hard to, to fully understand who these other characters are, unless you also understand the person who is somehow oppressing them. Mm-hmm. And so the play changed where all of a sudden, uh, Susan, who wrote herself into the play, she would be, uh, in the play, she's giving a direct address and then DSK would like pop up and insult her. (laughs) It's actually quite funny. Um, But she kept recurring throughout the play and that became part of really a core principle in the play is that like, you can't shut this person up just because they have so much power and they're not held accountable. So I'm going back now and looking at the article that I had written about it, which would appear in the published version of the play 
And like, it clearly says mm-hmm. that TSK is not going to show up at the play. It's <laughs> like, oh, well, that is absolutely wrong. And for a very good reason. Yeah, that's really interesting. But then at the same time, the article you wrote, um, does it's, it's an artifact of an earlier version of the play that is still that t- still tells us something about the development. Yes, of that totally. So. Yeah. You just like, it's really, I think it's hard always to be thinking about if the purpose of the article about a play that's in development is trying to open up um, like some questions that the audience should be considering as they're watching the play, um, then mm-hmm. I think that, particular article leads them down a different path Um, Mm -hmm. and if I were able to somehow and I'm probably going to I just haven't figured it out yet like I think I need to amend to say like this is a choice that she discovered in writing this play like that was the original Mm -hmm. impulse was to keep him out and actually that's a really interesting thing I think for an audience to think about is like oh why why would a playwright change um, their initial impulse? Like, what does that do to now have right. him constantly showing up in the play, even though she keeps telling him to get out? Have you, as a dramaturg, ever had an experience where you really were attached to the way a play was and a playwright was taking it in a direction you did not think was right? <laughs> and how do you navigate yeah. that? To be honest, I... I don't think that I have had that experience. Um, I think mm-hmm. more frequently, um, if ever I feel like there's a challenge in, um, like, if there's a challenge in where the development is headed, I think sometimes it stems from like the playwright and I are are thinking of the plays in different ways, and I think when mm. that happens. I have to like take a step back. I mean, it's not my play. Um, I might be telling them Mm -hmm. what I'm seeing and that's not necessarily like, I may have ideas about like what I think uh, should happen in order to get to a goal that I have identified. But if that's not the goal that the playwright has identified, then that doesn't matter. (laughs) So ultimately, I don't think I can ever get attached to like my my initial idea of what a play is because the it has to stem from what the playwright wants it to be. Yeah, although it sounds like I mean, I'm just putting myself in your shoes and things that must be difficult at times. Well, I think maybe not. It might be difficult, but that's also the fun part. I think the thing that I really like about dramaturgy is the the dialogue where you're trying to like circle in on the goal, like what's the guiding light. Um, And the processes that are like really easy feel like, oh, you've, you and the playwright and the rest of the artistic team too have all identified what that guiding light is and you're all in agreement and you're just kind of working out the how, but sometimes things that are earlier in their development, Mm -hmm. you might still be trying to decide what the guiding light is. 
And that's definitely challenging, but it's also, it's just a different way to flex your muscles in it really in conversation (laughs) and like trying to figure out what the thing is trying to do. Yeah. So I'd love to know what is it about plays or when you're in the room that really excites you? Yeah. Uh, so many things. So, so many things. (laughs) I (laughs) I mean, the thing about theater is that I know this is so trite because everyone says it, but really it is the fact that it's happening live in front of you. That is so special. Um, and I'll, I'll be transparent. Like I actually think that it doesn't happen that frequently in audiences where you and the rest of the audience members are really hooked into what's happening on stage and you're sharing an emotional response that's either the same or different, but it's because you're both really invested in what's happening on stage. I actually think that's sort of rare for me. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe other people feel differently, but I, I feel like it's a special thing. Like I, I watch a lot of theater and I don't always feel like I'm mm-hmm. uh, fully in tune with the audience. Um, but when it does happen, when you are breathing together and sobbing together and laughing together, and you're like relieved that you've just like that you've had this emotional experience and then it changes and you're along for that journey together, like that is really special. And I think that happens when there's a real sense of clarity from all the people who are making artistic choices about what's happening on stage, whether that's the playwright, the actors, the director, um, all of the designers, when there's like a real sense of clarity about what each moment is doing, that's when it seems like the audience really is in tune together. Oh, that's interesting. I've never thought about it that way before. That it's like the artistic team is kind of experiencing um, Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. the audience will experience in Mm -hmm. a way. Okay, so case in point, and you can stop me if this is boring, but um, like in last year's festival, uh, Lily Padilla wrote a play called How to Defend Yourself um, that was really exploring... Um, the culture, not just rape culture on campus, but really looking at, well, yes, that is what rape culture is. Um, But looking at a group of people who weren't involved in a campus rape, but who were deeply affected by all of the stuff surrounding it um, in thinking about how they navigate their own desire, Mm -hmm. um, how actually it's really normal Um, for like creepy rapey things to happen every single day. Um, When we did that play in front of our college days audience, which was primarily college students who are the same age and experiencing the same thing as the characters on stage, that was a really special experience. I mean, that's that's Mm. something that I will hang on to in... um, Like when I think about when I have felt really connected both to what's happening on stage and to like what's happening to the stranger sitting five rows in front of me, like 
it's because of the clarity, both of the writing and the directing and the acting team and the designers in knowing exactly what story they were trying to tell and whether they were pulling on your heartstrings or wanting to make you laugh or wanting to make you angry. And when you needed relief from all Mm -hmm. of those really big feelings that you were feeling. Um, And I felt like (laughs) I was watching it in the round too. So I could see everyone breathing together when they really needed to let that sob out. Um, Yeah. That's why I do theater and why I'm not interested in in other forms of performance. (laughs) So, and do you think part of the process, I remember in grad school, a lot of times, especially the directors were trained to think about, you know, who's my target audience for this play. Do you think part of the process um, should be, thinking about that, you know, particular audience seeing this play and, and that they're kind of tuning each moment for, say, a college audience um, or a different kind of audience for a different kind of play? Or do you think that just happens organically if you're I, true to I want, I mean, this is a really interesting question that I don't know if I have the answer for, um, partly because I'm not a playwright myself, so I don't think about it in that way. In some ways, I think if you're really true to the material, then you just let the work speak for itself. Um, as, a, as an administrator and someone who works in an organization, I think it's incumbent on me to find the audience who needs to, like, if that's, if that's your experience that's being reflected on stage, um, I want to both find that audience so that they can hear it and also so that I can hear from them and learn more about the play. Um, But I hope if it's really true to the material, then it's not just going to speak to the people that it's about. Like, hopefully that means that someone who's been out of college for 20 years and maybe hasn't thought about what it's like to like, want to lose your virginity and be the last person in your group of friends. (laughs) Like, I think, I think a 40 year old man should be thinking about that. Um, I think that if we want to have any sense of empathy about, um, like if we want to engender any political empathy in our audience, we have to invite other people who aren't reflected on stage to have empathy for whoever's story it is. Wow, yeah, that's so true. Back to just the the rehearsal or the developing of the play. One of the topics we like to talk about is formatting. Yeah. The play. And then is that ever <laughs> in discussion with your players, like how a play should look on the page? Uh, I mean, I don't usually talk about that um, because I think yeah. that there actually should be a lot of flexibility as long as it's like readable. And I know what's a stage direction, (laughs) what's being spoken, like, that's Mm -hmm. the important thing. I remember uh, not too long ago, because we were thinking about our, um, our script submission guidelines, um, and rethinking those, like, is it time for an update? So I was doing a little research. um, And one of my colleagues found an article. I don't know, it's on the, I think it was through the Playwright Center that she found it. I read this. I know the article you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
And they're like, it's like 10 things that readers of your play want you to know. And I read like the first five of them and was like, what are you talking about? Like, this is so condescending. And it was something like, you, oh gosh, don't have a glossary of like what particular punctuation means. <laughs> we were just like, talking about this. That's so funny. It, it was so insane. But I was really offended on behalf of players. But I, kind of, I, I was just thinking about that one because we were talking about formatting. And I, I kind of, I really do see that writer's point in that if you have so many symbols, it becomes very annoying to try to keep track of what, the, the one that bothers me is when um, one symbol means like these words are spoken, are not spoken out loud. Because then I have to keep track as I'm reading the play of what is just a thought and what is um, dialogue. I mean, I think that's fair. But I also think like, if that helps me as a reader understand what's happening in three dimensions, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, then I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. I really do. I actually do feel like a script is more like a musical score. Um, There's lots of ways that meaning is generating and generated not just through dialogue yeah that's or really true when people talk over each other or when they have a thought that they don't say or um if they say something that is actually a question but it's not uh phrased like with an uptone at the end of it like <laughs> I think that that is really important for me as a reader to understand like what's happening I do think Okay, to be fair, I think that there are some times that it can be overused. Um, but if a playwright is using it intentionally, mm-hmm. I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it's, I guess what we're all kind of struggling with is that we're trying to represent, as you say, three dimensions of um, living, breathing human beings in just marks on a page. and so, right. <laughs> And so you're trying to capture as a playwright, you're trying to capture how, not only how people sound, but what they're thinking and, mm-hmm. and their relationships with each other and like who has the most power in the room, you know, and you're trying yeah. to capture all of this just in, in words. And it, um, it is, we, we're always coming up against the limits of that. So. Yeah. And I'm like, I get it. Like, it's hard to capture all of that on the page. And that's, I think, where all of these symbols have come from as a way to get around that. Yeah. Um, like, I, so I remember uh, when I was teaching playwriting at Iowa, um, it was the only time I've ever taught playwriting. So I apologize to those students. But I do remember those students giving- were very lucky. <laughs> yeah. To have you. Like, I think I learned a lot about teaching that class from teaching it. Like, oh, I would do it so different now. But I do remember handing them uh, top girls and asked them to read it. And like, they came back and were like, I just, I could not understand what this was about. I didn't understand what was going on. And I was like, okay, this is like a really good learning exercise. Now, because you know how Carol Churchill writes, she is like the the person who invented the slash, I guess. I don't right. actually know who invented <laughs> it. But like, so then we like read it out loud and I told people uh, 
the U5, you're actually, your, your only goal is to pay attention to the slash and figure out like when to cut somebody else off or when to speak over them. And I don't know mm-hmm. if they got anything out of the exercise, but everyone who was listening to it was like, oh, like, yeah, <laughs> I understand now what writing for the theater is as opposed to reading something on the page. And of course, like the next week, they all turned in like stuff that was like riddled with slashes because it was the coolest <laughs> trick that they learned. <laughs> yeah, I think they can be yeah. really useful. No, I, I always make my students um, read things out loud in class because even though it takes so much longer than sending them home with something to read, it's like, that's the only way I think for them to really experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, this is sort of actually seeing right on stage. And like, this is what I find really hard about being a literary manager is because a bulk of my job is just reading plays by myself in my office um, mm-hmm. because we do read a lot of plays. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I find that so much harder. Um, I mean, because I do a lot of it, I think I've developed a skill for it, but it's still like, it's not the thing that makes me a good dramaturg. Um, like the thing that I wish that I had somehow magically more time to do is like to sit around with a group and hear it out loud rather than reading it on mm-hmm. the page. Um, Cause I also think that I organize my thoughts better by talking to people instead of organizing them on a play report of like, here's the synopsis of what the play is about. And here's how successful I think it is. I would much rather be in dialogue with someone so that I actually have something to like inspire me and push back against that's why I prefer dramaturgy yeah. to being a literary manager. That's really interesting. I've n- I don't think I've ever heard somebody talk about those two things as being so um, in opposition to each other because they often go hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, I do think that dramaturgs tend to be more literarily focused. And I think that that's true of me mm-hmm. too. Um, I'm very invested in the words that are chosen Um because I think that is also a mm-hmm. primary meaning maker. Um, mm-hmm. But you, I think you really have to use all of your senses when you're reading a play to imagine what does it look like in 3D? How does it sound? Um, you know, what's not being said? And I think that is just right. a lot harder to do by yourself. So Jenny, we have all kinds of listeners who some of whom might be interested in becoming dramaturgs or literary assistants or literary managers. Do you have any advice for them? Those people who want to pursue? Yeah. um, I mean, I think it will probably come as no surprise that my biggest piece of advice is just to talk about plays with people. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, Actually, the thing that taught me the most about being a dramaturg was our uh, playwrights workshop at Iowa. Like we'd hear a new play and then have like 10 minutes to use the restroom and gather our thoughts. And then we'd talk about it for like two hours. <laughs> that was just the best thing it ever. It was so Listen good. It. it just... Nothing right. compare. <laughs> it's like if you're sitting in a group of people who are all 
you know, also like very generous and like want their colleagues to succeed. And it's not, I think we had the benefit of like being a group of people that weren't competitive. Um, It wasn't about Mm -hmm. who said the smartest thing today afterwards. Um, I think Mm -hmm. that we all legitimately were just trying to like figure out our thoughts together. Mm -hmm. And I think that taught me the most about being a dramaturg is like, and it's, it's also because it happened so immediately after experiencing the play for the first time. Um, You really have to like flex that articulation muscle to like organize something that you've just seen. That's really fresh that you don't fully understand yet and um, do so in a way that's diplomatic and supportive um, while also actually saying something meaningful and not just, yeah, that was great. I liked it. Way to go. Like, which has its <laughs> use. But if you're trying to help someone understand something that is nascent, like maybe that the that is coming from like an impulsive place, um, then mm-hmm. I think speaking truth also is like a really important thing that you have to learn how to do. So that's like my biggest piece of advice is just like find a group of people, read the same play and then talk about it. And maybe read it out loud. I mean, I just, it just occurred to me as you were saying that, that I think as much as I dislike for many reasons, the form of the staged Mm -hmm. reading, I've kind kind of come to appreciate that it's maybe good training for sitting in a room by yourself and reading a play to yourself because it's almost like training wheels, you know, it's not a full production. So you have to supply the images in your mind as you're listening to it, but you are given these different people (laughs) reading the different voices. And so it maybe prepares you to then be alone with a piece of paper. Yes. you know, in a way that moving from watching a production to just reading plays doesn't totally do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like I always, I encourage people to go see theater and then talk about it afterwards, but also like that is training Mm -hmm. a different muscle too. It's like you have a whole lot more information Mm -hmm. when you see a full production. Um, So maybe if you're seeing a blueprint or hearing it out loud, it's calling on you to use different parts of your imagination. Yeah, that's so smart. Well, I just remember there was a big learning curve for me because I think the first couple workshops I went to, I I thought, okay, I'm just going to sit down and I will <laughs> receive the play, you know, and then I'll be able mm. to talk about it. And it wasn't maybe until the second or third month that I realized how actively I needed to participate as an audience member if I was actually going to be able to um, understand the play. I I couldn't just. <laughs> sit there like an audience member I had to actually yeah, yeah visualize yeah. it yeah especially a lot yeah. of the plays we would hear were still so early mm-hmm. in the process yeah. too well yeah like this is yeah. another habit that I picked up in that workshop that I think has actually served me well now um is that like during the workshop and of course you have the benefit of if you're hearing the play out loud then like the play proceeds at the pace that it's supposed to proceed at um or at least like a good approximation of that and so as the listener I was free to actually jot down notes and all I was doing is like because 
I didn't know what the play was about. I didn't know. I would just jot down like, here's something that surprised me. Here's a piece of information that feels important. I don't know why it's important yet, but in the moment it feels important. And that would help me keep track of like Mm -hmm. how I get to the end of the play feeling that it's about X, um, like what my journey through the play actually Mm -hmm. was. And I feel like now that's something that Mm -hmm. I do when I read plays by myself. I try not to slow down the pace that I'm reading at. Um, Like I actually want to experience it the first time in as close as to what it might be like on the stage. But if I'm going to remember anything about how I got to the end, I have to actually take a note of like, okay, here's, here's something that somebody said that feels like a surprise or here's a, here's what feels like I think somebody isn't telling the truth or this feels like an important action. Oh, that's really cool. I, so you write that I'm, down as a reader? When I'm doing my job well, I do. <laughs> I make a mental note of it? Yeah. <laughs> that's and really like, cool. I think there's a difference between doing that whenever you're first experiencing the play for the first time. And then like when you go back and try to be meticulous about it, sometimes like there's a difference between what, what happened, what you decide to, to write mm-hmm. down on the first go through. And then when you go back and you're like, okay, now I have the benefit of knowing how it ends. Here's now I can go through and like mark what are the events, you know, that lead me to the ending. And sometimes that matches up with the thing that you first wrote. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it doesn't. And actually that gives you a lot of information about like, okay, here are some questions that I have about like, why did this feel so important to me the first time? And it really isn't important um, maybe that was a red herring. Maybe that was intentional. Maybe it's not intentional and the playwright should know about it. Yeah. I saw, that makes me think of, I saw um, a stage uh-huh. reading of Here by Taylor Mack recently, which I had read before, um, and but I've never seen production, but I saw a stage reading of it where right from the beginning. A little um, bit, yeah. So do you guys know the play Here? No. A little bit? So... So the play opens where the there's it's like a family um, kind of um, conventional American family in a kitchen. That's how it opens, and the mom is being really kind of cruel to the dad. Um, and later in the play, you find out just how cruel the dad has been to the mom. But at the opening of the play, you don't know any of that. Um, and in the stage reading, the the stage the person reading the stage directions was high fiving the mom, <laughs> you know, or like you know giving her a thumbs up as she's being really awful in the opening moments. And it was so interesting because then you're immediately kind of comforted as the audience member that that you can be on the side of the mom. But it it changes your experience of the, of the play because if you're experiencing it without that then you you it it actually makes you much more uncomfortable to witness this cruelty so I don't know yeah and it's like that it was an interesting first time that you experience it not and when you don't know where it's headed you can't get that back you only get that once right exactly 
Yeah. So like, that's why I find that it's really necessary for me to sort of jot down what my initial impulses are, because they'll be gone if I, if I don't remember how it affected Mm -hmm. me the first time that I heard it. Yeah. You're creating a record for, of of what your initial thoughts were before they're covered up (laughs) by your later thoughts. Well, Shall we move to glistens? Oh, yay, oh, yeah. glisten. <laughs> I'm so glad that y'all have glistens on the show. <laughs> it was always my favorite part of the of workshop course. talk back. Well, Jenny, what's your what's your glisten from your week? Is there something you've seen recently that Um I'm I guess I'm cheating a little bit because it wasn't this week. I finished it maybe last week. But have y'all seen Fleabag? No. Oh, oh, I've seen I've seen the first episode. I haven't gotten to because I don't have Prime. <laughs> I, I swear, but, like, uh, anybody who doesn't have Prime, like, if you want to do that, you know, fake sign up for, like, a 90 90- <laughs> that's totally what I did. Yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> I heard everyone talking cool. about it, and I was like, oh, I, don't, I really don't want to pay for Prime, but I have a trial period. I think I could get through it during the <laughs> trial period. It is totally okay. worth it. Um. Yeah, it. I got I got into it because everyone was talking about how good the second season was, and it is. It's really mm-hmm. good. I won't give anything away. Um, it's a it's a great series, um, and that season has like a romance at the center of it, and it's a really well developed romance um, that's very complex. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, the first season was structurally so interesting um like for anyone who's actually interested in storytelling um devices and like how structure affects meaning that first season is killer and of course it's got like an unapologetic comedic female at the center of the story so uh two thumbs up there it's really good yeah yeah, I really love the the showrunner, the creator, because she also does um, Killing yeah. Eve, and that's a really great show, too. I just found out as she yeah. was on that, and I've been wanting to watch it because I'm a, such a big uh, Sandra O oh fan, but now I really want to. Oh, she's so amazing. Yeah, and it's like, and she's also a detective thriller type thing, so her, uh, Sandra O oh as the lead in that is just, oh, it's, it's awesome. So good. Yeah. Well, you guys, you're making me actually think maybe I'll watch <laughs> Yeah, Sam doesn't really watch TV. But this sounds really good. Yeah, I mean, it could happen. I know it I just happen. like sung the praises of why theater is so superior to TV earlier. And <laughs> I do believe that. <laughs> but there's a lot of really good TV these days. And it's probably mm-hmm. not uh, insignificant that there's a lot more playwrights writing for TV. So yay, playwrights. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll check it out. How about you, Sarah? All right. So my glisten, my glisten is um, out here in California, I experienced two earthquakes in two days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So when it happened, I was, I was telling this to Sam. So I was watching Stranger Things in the new season. I was binging <laughs> and there was this really epic, like alien fighting scene. Uh, not to spoil anything, but there's this epic scene and I thought I was like looking at uh, to my fiance. I was like, um, "When did we? When did our TV become a surround sound? Like I'm feeling this motion of." <laughs> and then we're like, "Oh no, it's another earthquake!" And then we would like ran to the door. We're like, "Cause it was it was I've experienced earthquakes, but 
this was like a little too long that I was comfortable with that I almost kind of it did scare me um so we went to the door but I love how I didn't really escape I just kind of looked at my cat and I was like what it looked like was like I was gonna follow whatever my cat's gonna do like if she's gonna stay and hang out I'm gonna stay and hang out with her <laughs> was she scared did no she, she was just perching and she was kind of like almost sleeping and I'm like it's not a if she's not scared then maybe I shouldn't be scared <laughs> yeah that's probably smart animals know right maybe I don't know about my cat though I shouldn't. <laughs> um but we are all like ready for it we got an emergency pack at uh bed bath and beyond (laughs) they have it that's where you buy your emergency pack is it like really aesthetically pleasing no it's not (laughs) first of all it looks like a child's backpack so i was like how did how is this supposed to save me or help me get out of the situation um what's in it yeah what's in it so it has um like a poncho it has it's for two people for 72 hours. There's this like a water packet that cleans your water. So you could, it's like drinkable. Oh, there is a protein bad. bar that equates to like how many calories a person should eat in a day to stay alive. <laughs> I don't know. Oh my gosh. Um, what? Yeah. And what else is in there? Yeah. Like a poncho, like I said, poncho, a first aid kit. Um, I think anything that's what about like some rope and a knife? No, or and a flashlight. Know, like some useful thing. Yeah, like a flashlight. Oh, I don't know. I didn't. I don't think there's a flashlight. I think that I have to do it on my own. <laughs> Put it together. Put my own. Well, if you have your phone, you don't need a flashlight. Right. Um, yeah. Basically, mm-hmm. it's if I find myself in a cave under rubble and. <laughs> oh where it's God. also it's raining, and so I could survive for seventy-two hours, and that's it. yeah and after that you just need your cat and she'll tell you what to do (laughs) butters i hope there's a poncho for butters as well cats don't like to get rained on either true butters um what's your sam um well i just saw last week the niceties um by eleanor burgess did you guys know that play I, I know the basic plot of it, but I haven't read it. Oh my God, it's so good. So Krista Williams directed it here at Interlochen. It's about, um, it's a two-person play, and it's about a white professor and uh, um, African-American student. And it's two hours, and I was like on the edge of my seat the entire time. And so was the rest of the audience. I mean, it was just a really compelling story. And um I, I think the writing is so good and I just want every theater to do this play. So that's my glisten. Yeah. I don't want to spoil anything, but it's just, you guys should just read it. <laughs> okay. Just have to see it. Yeah, exactly. Or hear it out loud. <laughs> yes. Go find some friends to read it. Yeah. yeah. It's really good. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jenny, for uh, being on our show and just yeah. being an amazing person. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so accomplished. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like I said, Jenny... we're in a very small world. So <laughs> any notoriety is like very limited, actually. <laughs> well, um, if people want to find you on the internet, where can they find you? Um, well, you know, the best place is probably actually through the Actors Theater website. Um, I really don't have much of a like 
I don't have my own website or any sort of uh, internet presence. But if you happen to be in Louisville, um, then look up my email on the Actors Theater website and shoot me an email and let's get coffee. Oh, perfect. Yay. Okay. Yay. Great. Well, thank Thank you you so much. Yeah, thank you guys. This was so much fun. 